Good morning. morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. If you're not married, I would encourage you to not tune out. So young single guys, I don't know if the Lord has given you the gift of singleness or marriage, but right now, if you're single, he's definitely giving you the gift of singleness, but that doesn't mean he won't call you to marriage one day. So I'd encourage you to pay attention. If you're uh, under the age of 18 and you're prone to tune out during sermons, I just want to encourage all you young guys this morning, Cohen, I'm locking eyes directly with you. I want to encourage you young guys to try to pay attention to what we're going to be talking about this morning because maybe one day you will be a husband and maybe you'll have a jump start on this incredible job, this incredible task that God has given us because you uh, acted in wisdom and paid attention when you were 12 instead of tuning out. So let's do a little bit of review. Uh, last week we said that Paul gives uh, husbands and wives two things. He gives marriage obligations, but he also gives gospel motivations. The marriage obligation for wives is to submit to their husband's authority and to respect. The gospel motivation for wives is they're supposed to look at the way the church submits to Christ and then imitate that. Well, this week we're going to look at the marriage obligations and the gospel motivations for husbands. The marriage obligation for husbands is to love through sacrificial leadership. To love through sacrificial leadership. And the gospel motivation for husbands as they do that is Christ laying down his life for the church. So just look at verse 25 of chapter 5. You can see that kind of summarized there. Paul commands, gives the obligation, and then the motivation. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's the command and gave himself up for her. That's the example or our motivation to follow. Now, last week we also saw uh, that marriage was, until the coming of Christ, a mystery. Now, if you remember, we said that mystery is not something that is like a riddle or it's not meant to be so complex that you can't understand it with your puny brain. It's not like, you know, mapping the neural circuitry of the mind or, uh, you know, trying to figure out the human genome. A mystery is just something that God has not fully revealed. Just God has not revealed the purpose and meaning of this thing. But as we saw last week, the mystery of marriage has now been fully revealed in the coming of Christ. In the gospel, we see that marriage is ultimately supposed to be, uh, when it's functioning properly, a walking, talking, living, breathing picture of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So, last week we asked ourselves, if, if the wife's submission to her husband pictures the gospel, how does, how, what, is, what does that look like? What does it look like for the church to submit to Christ? Well, this week, we're saying, okay, the husband's loving through sacrificial leadership, that pictures the gospel, but what does that look like? How do we understand that? Uh, does it mean that husbands have to actually literally die for their wives in order to fulfill this obligation? 
Does it mean that husbands are just required to say yes, dear, to everything that their wives ask of them? What exactly is God requiring of husbands in this verse? Well, that's what we're going to figure out this morning. So let's, let's read starting in verse 22 just for context, and then we'll, uh, we'll wrap up at the end of verse 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, as we're about to get into the part of the scripture where God speaks to the husbands, I hope you'll take, note, I hope you'll take notice that there is three times the amount of space devoted to husbands and their obligations as to wives and their obligations. Husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen. All throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh, God, refers to himself as the husband of his people Israel. So I'll just give you two examples. Speaking through the prophet Isaiah, God says this to his people. He says, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Or consider the famous passage about the new covenant from Jeremiah 31, which we've read and studied in the life of this church since I've been here no less than 15 times. Listen carefully, though, and notice some of the language that you may not have noticed as you've gone through it before. Behold, the days are coming, coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. More scriptures could be cited, but you get the point. In the Old Testament, God is the husband and his people Israel is the bride. That's the picture. And then we enter into the New Testament. And, and Jesus comes. Christ comes down as God in the flesh. The husband comes down to be with his bride. And that's why Jesus in the gospel has no problem referring to himself as the bridegroom. So there is a dispute about fasting. And this is how Jesus responds to that dispute. He says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom, speaking of himself, while the bridegroom is with them? John the Baptist referred to Jesus as the bridegroom who has finally come. And this is just all language from the Old Testament. The husband from heaven has come down to be with his bride here on the earth. And then in this morning's text, we also have Paul calling Jesus the husband of God's people, the church. Now, as a brief aside, this is a planned rabbit trail. I'm coming back. 
Whenever people ask me for proof texts on the divinity of Jesus, you know, I, I kind of laugh. I mean, I, I get it, and I do think that there are proof texts for the divinity of Jesus. I think that there are like, there are like one shot, one kill, silver bullet scriptures we can read that show that Jesus is divine. But I also just want to ask people, are you not reading your Bibles? And if so, what Bible are you reading? And if, if you're reading it, are you reading it carefully? Because if you read your Bible consistently and carefully, I think one of the things that you're going to see is just over and over again, Jesus does things that only God can do. He possesses attributes that only God can possess. He takes titles onto himself that only God can have. So for anyone to call themselves the husband of God's people would have been in the mind of any Jew listening would have been a very significant thing. Any Jew who understands the Old Testament reading what Paul says here about Jesus being the husband of his bride, the church, God's people, they would have heard that and immediately thought, this man is God. Okay, I digress. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, in his coming, living, dying, and resurrecting, we can see what God's love looks like. We can see what it looks like for God the husband to love his bride, the church. So if someone were to ask you, what is the clearest way possible for me to see and understand what God's love is like? We would respond, well, look at Jesus and how he loves the church. And then a step removed from that, you could say, look at any marriage, particularly a Christian marriage, and there you would see that same thing pictured again, albeit imperfectly. Now, Christ laying down his life as a, as a demonstration of what love is, is saying like, hey, what does love look like? It looks like this. Well, that, that's almost exactly what Paul says in Romans 5.8. He says, God shows his love for us. He demonstrates it. He, he's saying, this is what it looks like. So God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So husbands and future husbands, Christ loving the church is our model for how we should love our wives. So with that in mind, I'm going to give you eight points this morning. They're not all equally long. Some of them are so short, they almost don't count. But eight points this morning about what it looks like for Christ to love his bride, the church, or eight aspects of Jesus' love for us to imitate. So they're going to be now, there's eight. You've got to be a fast note taker. If not, you're just going to have to catch them on, on, the, on, on uh, the second trip through. Christ's love is sacrificial, heroic, forgiving, sanctifying, joyful, nourishing, strong, and unending. Point number one. Christ's love for the church is Sacrificial. Go back to verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Okay, how did he love the church? And gave himself up for her. There it is. That's that's the epitome of what it looks like for Christ to love the church. He, He sacrifices his life. For Jesus, love is not a fleeting feeling. It's not just a word. Love is a deep affection that leads to decisive action. This understanding of love is why John says in his first epistle, little children, let us not love in word or talk only, 
but in deed and in truth. The biblical understanding of love requires action, decisive action, sacrificial action. There's a worldly understanding of love that masquerades as a Christian understanding of love that doesn't demand anything of you. It doesn't require you to do anything. It doesn't ask you to give up anything. But Scripture doesn't know that kind of love. To quote uh, one of my favorite folk artists, if I don't owe you a favor, you don't know me. What she's saying is, is if you love me, you're probably going to have to sacrifice for me. I was really surprised to find out how helpful the dictionary definition of sacrifice is when I was preparing the sermon. Listen to what it says. It says, Sacrifice is the act of giving up something valued for the sake of something else regarded as more important or worthy. So it's the act of giving up something valued for the sake of something more valuable. So even in the Old Testament where God's people are commanded to offer up sacrifices, Right? They take the spotless lamb, the perfectly healthy animal. What they're doing is, is they're giving up something valuable, you know, this animal that they need in order to live in the land, and they're giving it up for something more valuable, namely the worship of the Lord. Love and sacrifice are always talked about in tandem in Scripture. They're, just, they're always there holding hands with each other. So I'm just going to give you a couple of examples rapid fire. John 15, 13. Greater love has no man than this that he lay down his life for his friends. Love, sacrifice. By this we know love. How can I know love? Well, he's telling you right now, pay attention. By this we can know love that he laid down his life for us. Love, sacrifice. And then, of course, we got the oldie but the goodie, the classic, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God loved us. And he sacrificed for us. The reason why sacrifice is necessary, ultimately all these sacrifices in the Old Testament, they're pointing forward to this final sacrifice, Christ. But the reason why sacrifice is necessary is because we're sinners. And the penalty for sin is death. And as sinners, none of us deserve to live. But Christ came and he said, Father, I love them, so take my life. I lay it down. I'm sacrificing my own life. Take my life, not theirs. Love and sacrifice. And this is one aspect of the gospel that I just, every time I come back to it, I always have trouble wrapping my mind around it. On the one hand, before Christ saved us, our lives were not very valuable at all. Now, I'm speaking here spiritually, of course, spiritually and morally. I don't mean to say that we don't have the image of God and that our lives don't have any value, that people can treat us like they would treat a cow, you know, shoot us and turn us into a hamburger. What I I mean is, spiritually speaking, our lives were worthless. Romans 5.8, to quote it for a second time, says that Christ died for us while we were sinners. Romans 5.6 says that we were ungodly. We were enemies of God. Uh, Earlier in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians 2, Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. How much value did our life have? Well, it had no value because we didn't have any life. We were dead. And yet he loved us. He loved the unlovable. And the proof of his love for us, the proof that he loved us even when we had nothing lovable in us, was that he died for us. To quote Romans 5.8 for the third and last time, God proved his love for us 
In case there was any doubt, any question, how does God feel about this sinful, rebellious people that have just completely spurned God and rebelled against God and been haters of God? How does God feel about them? He loved them. And the proof is that he died for us while we were still sinners. It seems like Christ saw worth in the worthless. I love this aspect of the gospel. And I love the way that the gospel truth and the most faithful communicators of the gospel, they don't mince words. The gospel is clear. It doesn't pretend like our sin hasn't completely ruined us. Like a big red wine stain on a beautiful white wedding dress. The gospel tells us the truth about our sin. It's devastated us. It's ruined us. We are worthless because of it. But God still loves us. Husbands, I pray that we would love our wives in this way. I pray that we would love our wives not according to their performance or according to our uh, perceived estimation of their worth at any given point in time. Like, if you found out that your wife had an affair, an illicit affair, with your best friend, and it happened in the bedroom that you share together, if she did that to you and, and she didn't deserve any of your love, I pray that you would still love her. Like Christ loved the church, I pray that you would find love in the unlovable. Because that's the way that Jesus has loved you. I think the real power of sacrificial love is not when we love people well when they deserve it. It's, it's when we love them especially well when they especially don't deserve it. Point number two. Heroic love. Imagine yourself in the foxholes of World War I. You've been in the trench for 22 days. You're weak, you're hungry, your feet are falling off. The sergeant calls the line to arms and he tells everyone to get ready to advance 20 yards to the next foxhole. Everyone grabs their gear, they hold their weapons tight. You can hear your fellow soldiers breathing heavily, they're all very nervous. You can't even lift your head above the ground line of the foxhole without being shot at. After a few minutes, the sergeant finally calls for the charge. You can feel your heart beating through your shirt as you peer over the edge into no man's land where you'll certainly be shot. Nevertheless, you've been trained to obey orders, so you let out a guttural yell as you climb up the ladder and out into certain death. And you run what seems like forever, but in actuality, it's probably only a few seconds. And then you dive into the foxhole in front of you. You made it. After a few moments of checking and double-checking yourself to make sure that there are no bullet holes that your adrenaline has covered up, you realize that uh, some of your buddies didn't make it. They're lying on the ground out there in no man's land. And as you, as you look back, you can see one of your close buddies on the ground. And he's calling for a medic. As he's lying there calling for a medic, you can see shots pepper the dirt around him. The enemy is still trying to kill him. It's not easy to move across the battlefield ever, 
but it's easier when you have to move with a whole platoon. But whoever goes out there to grab that man lying on the ground is going to have to go by themselves. You know that if you get up and run out and grab your buddy, you'll likely be shot. But there he lays, helpless. How long does he have? He, he could be shot at any moment. He could bleed out at any moment. But he is utterly powerless to save himself. So what do you do? What would a hero do? Romans 5, 6. For at just the right time, while we were still powerless, helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus saw us lying there completely powerless to save ourselves, but he didn't, say, he didn't stay safe. He moved out to a certain death in order to save us. And it's not like he wasn't afraid. When you read uh, the account of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in the Gospel of Matthew, you see that Christ had so much anxiety about going to the cross that he was literally sweating blood as he prayed. And yet he moved. He got up and he moved. He drug our helpless bodies to safety and he gave up his own life in the process. Being a hero doesn't mean it's easy. It just means that you do it even when it's hard, especially when it's hard. Husbands, I want you to know that you don't have to save this city. You don't have to save this country. You don't have to save this world. But you do have to love your wife with a sort of mundane heroism. Day in and day out, you have to get up and you have to look your fears, your weaknesses, your sins in the face, and you have to die to yourself. You have to sacrifice. It takes a lot of bravery. For those of you who are getting ready to be married, like our brother Blaine, brother, I just want to let you know, it takes, it, it's not like it ever gets any easier, you know? The ability to stare down your sins and your weaknesses and your fears and die to them in order to love and to serve your wife, I'm 15 years in, it's not any easier. But it's what we're called to do nonetheless. Point number three, moving now into the shorter points. Christ loves the church with a forgiving love. It's important for us to remember that the gospel doesn't just say that we were damaged or that we were weak or that we were stained when Christ saved us. It says that we were dead. It says that we were under God's wrath, that we were rebels, trespassers, that we owed God a moral debt that we could never repay. And through Christ's sacrificial death, we have been forgiven. I don't know if you've, if you've thought about the way God's love is connected to God's forgiveness, but just listen to Ephesians 1.7. It says, in him, that's in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, that is through his laying down his life, we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses. That's what redemption is. It's, we've been bought back, we've been forgiven, the debt no longer stands against us. In Ephesians 2.4 we read, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Husbands, if God can love us 
the perpetrators of high treason and rebellion against the holy and high king of heaven, how can we not find room in our hearts to forgive our wives? If God has been so kind and forgiving to us, how can we hold sin against our wives? If, if, if the Lord Jesus could forgive Peter for denying him three times, and it wasn't just like a, a casual denial, it wasn't a, a cavalier, it was a calling curses down on his head saying, listen, I don't know this man, okay? Stop asking me. I'm ashamed. I don't know him. If Christ can forgive Peter for that, what can't we forgive our wives of? Loving like Jesus means forgiving like Jesus. And it's not hard to hold a grudge. That's easy. It takes real strength in order to forgive. Point number four. Christ loves the church with a sanctifying love. The gospel says that we're forgiven, but it says more than that. The gospel also says that in light of your forgiveness, you must now put sin to death in your life. So look at verse 26. After talking about Christ laying down his life to save his bride, it says in verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. So Christ doesn't just die to save us. He also dies to sanctify us, to, to clean us, to set us apart, to make us new. We were covered in moral mud, in spiritual filth, but Jesus, he doesn't leave us that way. He cleans us up and then brings us home. You need to remember, friends, that Jesus doesn't love us because we're holy. He loves us in spite of our lack of holiness. And then because he loves us, he makes us holy. Earlier in the sermon, I said that I, I really struggle with wrapping my mind around this idea that, that the Lord finds worth in the worthless. And I think one of, those, one of the things that we can think of to make sense of that, to, to help us understand what, what's happening there in that reality of the gospel, is we have to remember that Jesus doesn't leave us in our worthless state. He gives us worth. He creates worth in us. Now, it's usually here where a lot of modern preachers and teachers will say something like, Jesus loved us because he saw the potential in us. No. No. If we were left to our own devices, we would just devolve into deeper and deeper states of moral and spiritual entropy. We would just, just sort of fall apart spiritually, just grow into greater and greater states of spiritual chaos and disorder. The only potential that we had before Christ saved us was the potential to send ourselves to hell through sin and rebellion. Jesus doesn't see potential in us. He sees potential in what his power can do in us. A sculpture doesn't, a sculpture doesn't see potential in a piece of stone or a block of ice. That doesn't mean that, that he doesn't evaluate the materials. But he doesn't see the potential in the piece of stone what he sees potential in is his ability with his giftings to take that piece of stone and turn it into something of his own design. His abilities is what gives that rock its worth, its value. And the same thing is true of us in our relationship with Jesus. The application for us on this point is a little tricky. 
You see, husbands are like Christ in this gospel picture, and wives are like the church, but the husband is not Christ, and the wife is not the church. So Christ sanctifies the church, but husbands, can we sanctify our wives? Well, the answer to that has to be no. We don't, but that doesn't mean that we're not called to be a tool of sanctification in the lives of our wives, and that rhymed, you're welcome. We don't have the ability to make our wives holy, but Christ does. Look at, look at verse 26. It says, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Okay, so how does Christ make the church holy? He washes her with the water of the word. Husbands, how do we make our wives holy? We wash them with the water of the word. And really, it's not us, it's God working through his word. We're just being used by God in part of that process. Now, real quick, we, we might want to ask, how does Christ wash his bride, the church, with the word? Because we're supposed to do what he does. Well, how does he wash his bride with the word? Well, he just, he just makes his word a comprehensive part of our lives. He tells us that man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. He tells us that we need to be constantly reading God's word, feasting on God's word, immersing ourselves in God's word. And then, in order to make that reality like almost uh, idiot-proof, he builds God's word into the very fabric of our corporate lives together, right? So all throughout the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, you see that what God's people do when they get together is they immerse themselves in the word. God commands God's people to get together, and then when they get together, he tells them what to do. And what are they supposed to do? Well, they're supposed to communicate the word, listen to the word, sing the word. Paul tells Timothy, read scriptures when you get together. He tells him, preach the word, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. How does Christ cleanse his church, sanctify his church with the word? Well, he just builds it into the fabric of our lives together. It's one of the reasons why when you find an unhealthy church, what you'll probably find is just very little of God's word or a misappropriation of God's word. Okay. Husbands, future husbands, uh, listen to me here. Your greatest goal in loving your wife is her growth in sanctification. It's her growth in Christ-likeness. That's your aim. That's what you're shooting for. And that is not something that you do. That's something that God's word does, and you just get to be a part of that process. What that means for your, for your leadership as a husband is that God's word just needs to be central. What I don't mean, and I, I don't want any husbands or future husbands here to walk away from this sermon feeling unnecessarily burdened. I don't mean that you have to be the guy who sits down and teaches your wife a Bible study every night. Right? That's not what I mean. I don't mean like every night you got to sit down, all right, what verse are we in tonight? 1 Corinthians 8 through 11, matters of the conscience, I got this. You know, I'm going to teach, no. What I mean is that God's word needs to be central in your leadership in that it's what you stand on, it's what you trust in, and it's what you communicate to your wife as you lead her, right? When you're thinking about finances, you're talking about it through the lens of God's word. When you're talking about children and how you should raise them, you talk about it through the lens of God's word. Time management, relationships with family and friends, you sit down to have a conversation. Husband, you try to lead your wife 
You don't just give your opinion. You try to use God's word. And just a little, like a little uh, life hack for you. Uh, husbands, you will make it very easy for your wives to submit to your leadership the more you point to God's word and the less of your own opinion you give. Right? Because when, when you point to God's word in your leadership, your wife doesn't feel like she's submitting to uh, one of her fellow sinners. It, it makes it pretty clear and obvious that she's really just submitting to the word. And she does so joyfully because that's what it means to be a Christian. You submit joyfully to what God has said in his word. Number five. Christ loves the church with a joyful love. A joyful love. A few weeks ago, I had the privilege of officiating a wedding. And uh, man, the bride, you know, the music plays. It was a Nigerian wedding, so they were playing Nigerian music. I wasn't sure that the bride was coming, but here she comes, boom, walking down the aisle, turns the corner. She's glorious. She's radiant. I look at her. I look at him. Boom, his face is lit up like Moses, who had just been in the presence of the Lord, right? I mean, just the fullness of joy, like joy concentrated right there on his face. And then I look at her, and as she gets closer, I can see the same silly grin on her face, right? And just as they get closer, I'm worried like two atoms are going to collide, and their joy is just going to explode and destroy us all. But, like, they looked so full of joy that I, it almost didn't look real on their face, right? And I just thought, man, that, that look on that husband's face, that is what Christ feels when he looks at us as bride. How, how incredible is that? I remember sitting in a Bible study once where we were walking through Ephesians 5, and somebody asked the question, so who's got it worse? The wife who has to submit or the husband who has to sacrifice? You know, I just thought, well, there's got to be a better way to frame that, right? There's got to be a, a better way to ask that question. Who's got it worse? Well, this is what God commands for the health and the flourishing of the marriage, not for the suffering of the marriage. It probably won't serve our hearts well to think about our respective roles and responsibilities in marriage to ask who's got it worse, the one who has to submit or sacrifice, the gospel, it's true that marriage does have obligations. Wives, you are obligated to submit. Husbands, you are obligated to sacrifice. This is a command in the Lord. But in the gospel, you should know that duty and delight are never in competition. Well, they shouldn't be. I'm not saying that they're never in competition in our own hearts. But joy and obedience are never in competition. The happiest Christians I know are the ones who understand that their obedience to whatever God is calling them to do is just them entering into the, the fullness of what God has planned through for their life through what he has deigned and, and ordered in this world. Wives, you don't have to submit to your husbands. You get to. Husbands, you don't have to die and sacrifice yourself for the sake of your wives. You get to. You have the, the pleasure of doing it, the privilege of doing it. Have you ever thought about that phrase before, my, my, my privilege? Yeah, it was my privilege, or it was my pleasure. Cue the Chick-fil-A. Everybody good? Got that out of your system? I said my pleasure. We all thought about Chick-fil-A, and we're moving on. Okay. But I, I do wonder if you've ever thought about that before. You know, if you stop and think about it, what does it mean when somebody says that? You've probably said, like, hey, can you come help me move? And, you know, you get done at the end of the day, you fed people pizza, and you go, man, thank you so much for helping. They're like, oh, dude, my pleasure. 
I've never said that, but theoretically, right, it could happen that way. Uh, you say, oh, dude, my pleasure. Or, yeah, man, it was my privilege. Well, what they're saying there is like, yeah, actually, it wasn't easy and it, it was kind of a burden, but because I love you, I don't count it as a burden. I count it as a pleasure. I count it as a privilege. Husbands, I'm not pretending like it's always easy to sacrifice for your wives. I'm not saying that it's ever easy to die to yourselves. What I am saying is that the more you grow in your understanding of the gospel, the more you'll see that sacrifice as an investment in your own pleasure and joy. I, uh, I once talked to a guy who uh, drove several states through the night to go ask for his uh, fiance's hand in marriage, right? He wanted to go ask the, or I guess his girlfriend, he wanted to ask the dad. So he drove several hours across, you know, several states, and to, that sounded terrible to me, so I go, ugh, ugh, really, ugh, and he goes, no, nah, it was nothing, and I'm like, what do you mean it was nothing, and he was like, you know, I just really wanted to marry her, right, that burden became a privilege for the sake of his love, husbands, I think that's the way we should think about serving our wives, it's the way that Christ thought about his sacrifice, Hebrews tells us that Christ laid down his life for the joy that was set before him, Right? Does it mean that dying on the cross was easy? No, but he was able to count it as joy, count that suffering as joy, because he knew what he was going to receive from that. And I think that's what James is getting at when he says, count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Right? So husbands, it's not, it's not almost ever going to be easy to die to yourself, but I count it as joy because there is true joy coming for your sacrifice. And the only way that you can do this is if you're filled with joy yourself in the Lord. The best way that you can lead your wife with a, a joyful heart is to be filling yourself up with joy. So uh, having said that, I want to plug, this is pretty far out, but I still want to plug Will's Sunday school class. Brother, do you remember what you said you were going to call it? No? But it's going to have a lot to do with joy, right? And uh, I think that that's something we all need to spend extra time thinking about, and I'm excited about it. So thank you for teaching that, brother. Number six, nourishing love. Christ loves the church with a nourishing love. Look at verses 28 and 29. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So here Paul combines an argument from experience with an argument from the gospel, right? First, Paul's argument from experience. He says, listen, nobody ever treats their own bodies poorly. Now, what Paul does not mean here, Paul does not mean that we don't ever, we don't always treat our bodies as best as we possibly can, right? Like, I abuse my body several evenings every week with a pint of Ben and Jerry's. And if you thought I was going to get through a sermon without making a Ben and Jerry's reference, you got another thing coming. Okay, he doesn't mean that we always treat our bodies as well as we possibly can. What he means is that uh, we take care of ourselves. We seek our own good. We seek our own pleasure, our own security, our own joy. That's just what we do. That's Paul's argument from experience. But you won't understand that unless you understand Paul's argument from the gospel. So Paul says that the reason why Christ loves the church so well is because she's a part of him. Right? You remember what we talked about last week in marriage, the two become one? Well, 
in this gospel picture, Christ marries the church. The two have become one. Why does Christ care for the church so well? Well, because she is a part of him. That's why Jesus loves us the way that he does, because he's loving himself. Elsewhere in the Bible, Jesus says, treat others as you want to be treated. And in marriage, these two realities become one, theoretically. So, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. But in the gospel, your neighbor becomes yourself when you get married. Try to wrap your minds around that. So, my question for you husbands is simple. Are you nourishing your wives? Do you cherish them? If you struggle to know what that looks like, just ask yourself, how do I treat myself? I always make sure that I get my ice cream. You know, I always make sure that I get to watch, you know, I always make sure that I get my eight hours. Whatever it is, whatever the thing is that you do to care for yourself really well, just stop and ask yourself, well, am I willing to do that for my wife? And then go do that for your wife. Number seven, Christ loves his church with a strong love. A strong love. Uh, I don't have anything unique here to say. Guys, I just want to remind every man in this room, future men, listen to me. This is very important. You are strongest when you are serving. You are strongest as a man. See, Cohen, you're not listening. But I said that just for you. You are strongest when you are serving. Do not look at the world to try to understand what strength is. If you do, you'll just find chauvinism or something else like that, some other kind of carnal masculinity. If you want to see what true strength looks like, look at Jesus. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says that he came not to be served, but to serve, to lay down his life as a ransom for many. And there is no greater strength than the strength of the God-man, Christ, God in human flesh. He is the epitome of strength. He is omnipotency in the most potent form. And there he is, taking on the posture of a slave, washing the feet of his disciples. If you want to know what strength looks like, that's it right there. That's the picture. It looks like Christ hanging on the cross to save those people who hated him. It looks like a husband putting his own needs and wants aside for the sake of his wife's holiness and happiness in God. And if all of this love talk this morning has you feeling a little less masculine, like your testosterone levels are plummeting as I preach, well then I just, I don't think you understand what masculinity is. If you show me a man's ability to love and to sacrifice and to serve, there you will find his true strength. Number eight, Christ loves the church with an unending love. Over and over again, God makes this same promise to his people. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He says it in other ways. He says, nobody will be able to snatch you out of my hand. He says it in other ways, even in this book here in Ephesians, as, he's, as, as Paul writes, he's, he says that he's sealed us for the day of redemption. Right? So he's loved us, and that love guarantees that we make it all the way home to be with him forever. He loves us with a permanent love, with an unending love, with a, an unbreakable love. Husbands, this is the kind of love that we must strive to have for our wives. 
we must be committed to never giving up on our marriages. We talked about this last week, but to repeat myself is no problem for me. And that's right. Our love for our wives must be a strong covenantal love. Covenantal love is love that's not easily broken. It was designed to not break. And it should never break if we men have anything to say in the matter. If this is a time where you really want to, if there's ever a time for you to really puff your chest out and say, it's time for me to be a man, this is the time. You say, I'm not going to let my marriage be destroyed by sin. I'm not going to let this thing fall apart. I'm going to fight for this thing. Even if it means I give up my life, I'm not going to let this marriage dissolve. I'm not going to let it come to an end. You better fight for your marriage. Fight for your wife ferociously like Christ would fight for the church. Love means giving all of yourself for the sake of the other. And that's what Jesus did. He literally gave all of himself. He gave his life. And if your marriage ever gets to the point where you feel like divorce is coming down the pipeline, you better ramp up your love. You better give all of yourself to make sure that that covenant promise is not broken, at least if you have anything to say about it. It's one of those times where you should say, over my dead body, and and mean it. Not literally, but seriously. You know, the gospel says, even if I have a right to a divorce, right? Because Jesus says that if, if, if somebody commits adultery, you have the right to get a divorce. But it says, even if I have a right to a divorce, I should still fight to forgive. I should die to myself, and I should try to save my marriage. And husbands, the weight of this sits especially on your shoulders, right? So all that submission talk last week, you were like, yeah, man, hope she's listening, right? I hope you're listening. The weight of your marriage sits especially on your shoulders. That's what it means to be a leader. With great, with great uh, authority comes great responsibility, right? When, when God came to the garden, he didn't say, hey, Eve, where you at? What you been up to? What's going on here? He came to Adam. Adam, what's going on, man? What, what's happening here in your marriage? You're supposed to do something. If the Lord Jesus ever comes calling to your house, knocking on your door to address a marriage issue, he's going to talk first to the husband and say, what's up, man? You're, you're supposed to be leading this house. What, what's going on? What's happening here? Why are you letting this marriage fall apart? Even if your wife is completely in sin, the burden is on you. The onus is on you. Yes, of course, wives should fight for their marriages. But husbands should fight harder. They should fight longer, more creatively, more ferociously. They should imitate Christ and his ferocious and unending love. I was going through this sermon with Will in preparation uh, on Friday, and he gave me a one-liner that was so good, I can't believe I missed it. He said, listen, if, if Christ wouldn't divorce you, you should never divorce your wife. That's what unending love looks like in our lives, practically. In closing, uh, you know, I've talked to a few women who have told me, like, a lot of the women stuff, like how to be good moms and good wives, a lot of that stuff can just feel like a burden, right? Like, like people are putting a yoke on you. It's all very performance-based and performance-oriented, and, and I hate that for you ladies, and, and there are a lot of good resources that do a better job. They try to encourage you with the gospel, but you should also know that the same thing is true for men. 
A lot of the, the manly, you know, the, the be a better man, be a better father, be a good Christian husband, the books and the conferences and the sermons and the Bible studies, the curriculums, it's all about trying harder and doing better. You just try harder, you do better. That's what it means to be a man. And to be sure, we do need to try harder. And we do need to do better. But we have to say more than that. Our motivation for trying harder, our motivation for doing better really matters. And Paul roots and grounds this try harder, do better. You need to, you need to, sacrifice, you need to be like Christ, and that's almost impossible, but you still need to do it. He roots that and grounds that in the gospel. That is our motivation. So husbands, the main practical takeaway and future husbands that I have for you this morning is this. The key to loving your wife well is to behold well. Your marriage obligation to your wife can only be sustained by your motivation in the gospel. So if you want to build and, and maintain, by God's grace, a strong and happy and holy marriage, you have to stay fixated on the gospel. So back in chapter five, verse one, Paul told the Ephesians, he says, be imitators of God. And that's what he's saying to husbands again this morning. You want to be a good husband? Don't do it in your own strength. Don't imitate the world. Don't look at even, even pseudo-Christian messages. Don't look at any of those things. No, look at God. Imitate God. How, how can I see God? Well, you look at at Jesus, God in the flesh, and the way that he's loved the church, you imitate that, and that is how you can be a better husband. That's your motivation. That's your strength for trying harder and doing better. Rather than bringing this sermon to a close with my own words, let's just read Paul's summary of what he's taught so far in verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Father, you've given us commands that feel impossible, but you've given us motivation that will uh, strengthen us and sustain us. We have the ability to endure and to do so with joy. We pray that you would help us, Lord. We pray for every marriage in this room, whether uh, happy and healthy or struggling. We pray that your word would breathe life into those marriages, even this morning. For future marriages, Lord, we pray that we would raise young men and women in this church who are uh, so enraptured with your son, Jesus Christ, so in love with him, so full of his life, that when they unite themselves to another person in marriage, that they would just multiply that, that, that we would have healthy marriages that picture the gospel to a lost and dying world. We need your grace, and so we know that we have it in your son, Jesus Christ, and so we rejoice. Amen.